Hello, this is Charles Wiz. And Tony Silva. And this is episode 163 of Two Teachers Talking. And if you haven't heard what we talk about on this podcast by now, well, welcome to a podcast where Tony and I talk about all things related to teaching in Japanese universities and teaching English in Japanese universities and the ups and downs of being a teacher and a retired teacher. And today, what we're going to be talking about is a, I think, a strange topic in a sense, and that is diversity in teaching or teaching diversity, but not in the usual way that people might expect. Yeah, not in the contemporary sense of diversity, right? In a completely different direction. Yes, that's what I think, at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. And since you've mentioned it, why don't you go ahead and explain it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, so diversity, not in terms of, you know, uh, gender or race or any other things that come up with that, but and just some different types of delivery, uh, to the students, uh, well, you know, whether it's content, whether it's method, whether it's the teacher or the teaching style or anything else, just to mix up, mixing it up, the different kinds of ways of getting your lesson to the students. And there's tons and tons of research about how mixing it up, um, you know, whether it's, you know, and we, we've talked about different things that like a little bit, of, you know, on a micro scale, like for example, difficult to read fonts, um, where the student is doing the uptake, you know, are they studying in their room? Are they studying in a coffee shop? Um, that mixing those things up, uh, Enhances learning, it enhances uptake, uh, and we're t- you know talk about you know what we do and or don't do or should do, um, and what might work and some ideas and things. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're headed. Um, but Charles, for you guys back in Japan, end of the semester, feeling good? Feeling. <laughs> <laughs> end of the semester, end of the rainy season. Well, come on. Okay. It's, it's got to come on. There's a, there's there's a, there's a, there's a silver lining right here, right? Oh, of course there's a silver lining. I was going to say <laughs> I I will be feeling good once grading's all done and everything's submitted and then I can start getting ready to plan for the following semester. You know, it's the teacher's life, but yes, you know, the end of well, rainy season. That's a real season. luxury, man. To, to, to having the time to do your job. <laughs> it's yeah. like, come on. Okay. We have to we have to give the audience a warning is Tony's in like this super positive mode or mood today where every Everything is fine and everything is rosy and the world is sunny and I'm in my usual grumpy mood. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's it's the end of the semester, about to finish off classes. So by the time that this podcast goes on the air, I'll have like one more day of teaching, you know, the last day of teaching at one school. And of and interestingly enough, it's my last spring semester as a full time mm-hmm. teacher at my school. So that's kind of an interesting thing feeling to put it mildly yeah it is it's, well you've gone fun. through this yeah 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 it's it, yeah and you, you got lots to look forward to yes lots to look forward to so yeah so there um, is that and it is the end yeah. of the semester so but and but, all this rosy all this rosiness is me looking at your green grass over there as i'm not i'm not looking over here i'm looking at boy it's nice to be done with the semester and weather breaking a bit and it's like it's like you're you're it's your 
the grass is green over there, man. Okay, Antonio, and what's the hu- <laughs> what's the humidity level where you are right now? Uh, it's probably about thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah. Okay. So, just to put things in perspective and to put Tony in his place. <laughs> okay, but let's really get back to what we're talking about here. Uh, I like your definition of diversity and how we're approaching it. So this is also, um, you know, that this is a different kind of diversity. And what we're really talking about, I I don't know how to call it, but individual diversity, teaching diversity, individual teacher diversity, but we have to break it into two areas. One is how much programs hire teachers with diverse styles, teachers with diverse deliveries and approaches to teaching is one aspect of it. And the other side is how the teacher has diversity in their delivery, in their teaching, in how they approach what they're doing, which is what you talked about, just the different ways of um, doing things. So let's start and get the first one out of the way, which is the, you know, do programs have any interest or in hiring diverse teachers in terms of style, delivery, approach? And Tony, your attitude was simply no. I think. Of course not. <laughs> right there. Yeah, of course not. They, they don't pay any attention to anything like that. Right. And you're saying that, opinion. in your opinion, that all they're really interested in is what are people's research records? Research records and who's going to cause the fewest problems. Hmm. Okay. And we were, Tony and I were talking before and just kind of trying to understand why would any university require a PhD for someone to teach part-time, to teach first-year English classes. But we see that more and more, that a PhD is required. I understand the master's degree because mainly, I think, most master's programs really are almost like an advanced teaching program. And would you agree with that, Tony? I don't know. I don't. Okay. I, I can't say. I, I can't agree or disagree. I don't know enough about okay. the different degrees and what what they encompass and what they do. Well, the we know the PhD is a real research degree. It's a research sure. driven degree for sure. Absolutely right. Whereas a lot of the master's programs I looked at and the one that I went through, there was a real focus on methodology, understanding how to teach the theory behind language, second language acquisition, so that you could be a better teacher. And right, also, but, so- but 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 with the but the the the, the problem is is that and, and i think you're absolutely right with the master's degrees master the teaching master's degrees but a lot of institutions don't really care if it's a master's degree in teaching they just want the master's degree it doesn't matter it could be an mba it, mm, it's a, it's a master's true. degree it's a, it's a master's degree so they're not again my cynical side is like they're not really looking for that extra teaching ability. They want the credential and it can be a business in economics. It can be a business and I mean, a master's degree in, in business. It can be a, ma- a master's degree in science. It's just, as long as it's the, the, you have the credential, that's all that really matters. A lot of places, not, not everywhere, but a lot of places are like that. But I think, I think your, your point about um, this uh, substantive difference of a teaching master's degree and a, T and a PhD in education are 100% spot on. Mm, okay. So my question really is, is looking at to what degree or actually why, when people are hiring new teachers, 
And I've almost never seen this where someone has said, explain to us how you teach or what you, you know, how do you deliver a lesson? What's your approach? I mean, there's general things like, you know, my favorite question always was, um, how do you motivate students who are not interested in learning English? Which is kind of like, okay, <laughs> that's a funny question to me. I think I've told that story, haven't I, Tony? I, I think so, yeah. yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, we we talked a lot about interviews. You talked about hiring. Right. We talked about that that question of motivation. Right. A lot. And you know, I and I, I want to segue here for some a second because this is this is how I actually got started thinking about this topic. I was listening to um, an interview with um, Gary Marcus, who is an AI researcher. Um, I'm one of the leading voices about trying to monitor ai and is concerned with where ai is going and he was talking he was being interviewed and somebody said well when did you get interested in this and he said he was always interested in you know how you know you could get computers to do interesting things and that set me off and i realized ah that's exactly it the teacher's goal is how do we get our students to do interesting things right, in the classroom and outside of the classroom. It's not how do we motivate them, what do we do to motivate them, but how do we get our students to do interesting things? And go ahead. You know, I said that emphasis on, on the activity uh, and the, the actual event, event, activity. Action. Production. It's, production is, is brilliant, yeah. Yeah, so this really got me thinking. And then I thought to myself, well, I look at my classes and some of those students respond positively to me. Some of them don't respond positively to me, to put it mildly, given my style. Maybe I'm too energetic in the classroom. Uh, maybe I'm speaking in a way that that's difficult for them. Maybe my style, maybe they prefer less group work. Maybe they prefer more group work. I don't know. And that's what got me thinking, well, if I, we want our students to do interesting things, um, then they need to have exposure to a wide variety of teachers that can help them do interesting things with what they're learning. And again, this came about um, and goes back to that Malcolm Gladwell talk that I keep invoking all the time where he's doing um, talking about what is it? It's a, Joy, happiness, and spaghetti sauce. It's a TED talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah, he, I, know, I know that one. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's always where he talks about how Pepsi asked a researcher to find the perfect level of um, artificial sweetener or, or sweetness for their drinks. And he just said that there is no perfect Pepsi. There are only perfect Pepsis. And I love that line because we know that there is no one way. And this is key. There is no one best way to teach to your students, to a classroom. And we also know that there is no one best way to teach to any individual student, giving the variability and variation in that student from week to week in the classroom, right? One day this might work, one day this might not work. I mean, things can be consistent, but students do have variation in what works for them given what's going on in their lives how they feel where their you know brains are on that date right so this is where this came from and it got me thinking uh, what we talked about in the beginning uh, 
that I don't think that there is any intentionality in any of the places I've ever worked where, except for one, where there was concern that there was a variety of teacher styles, for lack of a better word, of different kinds of teachers who would be different in the classroom so that students would be exposed to different kinds of teachers, but hopefully that there would be one teacher who might resonate with them, one teacher's teaching style that might resonate with them. And I emphasize doing this intentionally by clearly trying to find out what was somebody's style, how do you teach, what do you, how do you deliver a lesson, et cetera. And I just like, well, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a program do that. They just seem to be interested in getting the, what is it, Tony, you said, the teacher with the most research who will cause the least number of problems, right? Right, right. So few student complaints, fewest parent complaints, fewest administrative complaints. Just make it smooth, make my job easy. Mm. So that's where this came from. And I think that's the easy part of today's podcast is that, <laughs> you know, that we need to say that people need to start doing that. And, you know, to any person who's running a program or any group of people who are running a program is to make sure that you have diversity in the kinds of teachers you have. And that's a, a wide range of things, but not just what, it, well, you know, all the range that we now support in terms of understanding the importance of diversity as it is used. Um, but also in terms of how that person teaches, how that person interacts with students. Um, and I'm talking about that students need to be exposed to teachers who are strict, to teachers who are easygoing, to teachers who emphasize lots of group work or teachers who emphasize pair work, teachers who believe that problem-based learning is a good way to go versus teachers who um, are focused on more content-based instruction or direct instruction. Sure, and grammar Nazis and communication first, and and all of that absolutely. And it's it actually is I, I kind of kind of forgotten this because, uh, <laughs> but I don't know if it's because I'm old or because it was so long ago. That's because but, you're old. Um, I guess so. But uh, I think it was because it was so long ago. But it was back. I remember when I was you know um, in that in a, one of my, the, my first years teaching in Japan and uh, at. Uh, at a semongako uh, in Osaka and assembling a team and having those exact concerns, um, and, you know, again, a team with a balance and different kinds of approaches, like someone who's really kind of a hard ass, someone who's like fluffy and friendly and, and whatever, you know, like a kindergarten type class. And then, you know, hardcore, you know, real, uh, EFL, ESL background was like <laughs> knows the series, know, knows the methodologies. This is it's going to do the job, and it's like it's like okay. And I remember putting this all together, and it's like yeah, okay, this is this is going to work. This this is when I doing the interviewing, right? This is this person will fit because this is a void in in our team right now. You know, we need a pitcher. We need we need a home run hitter. We need a, we need a left fielder. Um, and putting it all together, it's like it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's oh, that's over thirty years ago. So um, my you know uh, my apologies, but yeah, I remember that. Mm. And the program where you and I worked together, 
Yes, that was, was the, other the one. same thing. Was that there was an intentional goal of saying, "Hey, there needs to be a variety of people." Of course, this is separate from the people who were hired by the person who hired me. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how often that is taken into consideration intentionally, um, and that's just bec- and I base that on the general interviews I've had, because what I'll do, um, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, do you have any questions? And you say, well, would you tell me what is the, what kind of, you know, teacher are you looking for? What kind of person are you looking for? And never has anyone said, well, we're, we're looking for a wide variety of people, or we're looking for somebody to fit this. In other words, I've, I've seen that people have said, we want to, we're looking for a grammar specialist and they'll hire that person to teach grammar, let's say, or, right. or syntax. Um, we're looking for somebody who is an elementary school specialist or a middle school specialist, for example. Um, but really I've never heard that in that question or the answer to that question. I've never been questioned about that in the same way. So I just want to say that if anyone's listening, who is, involved in the hiring of instructors, let's say for an English education program, please try to make sure that you get a diverse group of people. And I mean diverse again in all the different ways, but do not forget about how the person teaches and what they prioritize in their teaching, how they deliver things. I think that's really key. Anything we want to add to that before we get to the really important part, which is how do individual teachers teach? You know, have well, I, I want this to be just like a postscript, but I, and I don't want it to be a, a tangent thing. But one of the other things you talk about diversity, um, I have my my opinions, and um, I won't state them here. But along with that team, like I'm talking building a team, uh, depending on the the bent of the institution, you also have the, all the Englishes, um, American mm-hmm. English, British English, Australian English. Um, and for one reason or another, you'll find some places leaning very heavily toward one or the other. Um, that's also another consideration for the students, right? To have exposure to the kinds of English that they may encounter in the real world. Yes. That's all I want to add. Okay. And I'll just postscript onto your postscript here that I'm seeing more and more, uh, people who are coming to, you know, being hired who have Let's say someone from Singapore, it might be somebody from India, somebody from, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, you know, there seems to um, other places, you know, um, so that and that I think is so important is that students are exposed to those different accents and the different, you know, um, ways that English gets used. So, OK, we OK with that? Yep. All right. Now. This idea of teaching the individual teacher having diversity in their teaching. And this is a wide area. This can cover a lot of things, but I think the easiest place to start with this for anyone who's like maybe saying, I don't get it or I don't understand, or how can I implement this easily is to start with low stakes versus high stakes kind of activities. And I think a lot of times it's very easy to just do mainly low stakes or mainly high stakes kinds of activities instead of having a large variation. And some people might look at this as formative versus summative evaluations, and we want to look at that as well. But the idea that 
we have to really alternate between high stakes and low stakes activities so that students have opportunities to explore things. And I've, the way I kind of do that is I have these like weekly quizzes and they're for small amounts of points, you know, 10 or 15, 20 points, let's say for an activity that might have usually be about a hundred points and then to include other more high stakes activities. But the ratio of low stakes to high stakes might be two to one or three to one. And that kind of gives students chances to practice a lot, but also it helps students who are, let's say, maybe nervous or who get a lot of pressure or get nervous and tense. But that's like one quick way um, in terms of just a real practical piece of advice for getting some variation in, in a very simplistic way. And I think you did a combination of that when you were teaching, right? Some low stakes, high stakes stuff? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. What was your ratio? Do you think uh, low stakes and high it stakes? Varied, varied. All, all, that would vary depending on the class because some, some classes are, are very willing to engage, some are not. And I was mixing things up all the time and I was teaching so many classes a week. I would not be able to give you uh, a, a ratio at all. Because um, it, it, it might, it would vary like from, from class to class and from week to week. Okay. All right. Because it was, it was very dynamic and seat of the pants. Well, that's, that's me. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think that's both of us in a sense that we would go into a class. We know what we wanted to do, but. We would definitely improve. Whoops! Yeah, we got to do something else. This was this is this is not working again. It's not going to work today. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work yesterday. Plan, it's not working today, we're, and we're it probably to plan won't D work tomorrow. Right okay, so we've got the low stakes, high stakes things, and low stakes can be just a group activity with low points or something, or no points even. Sure. High stakes are always like you know final exams, um, entrance exams, or for universities are definite high stake kinds of things. So we want to vary that, but let's move to, let's say, a more uh, reasonable, um, more likely example would be something where you've decided that you're going to do some, okay, you're going to do some content-based instruction, some CBI. And uh, for, if anyone's not familiar with that, that's where the focus is on the content, and you're using the target language to teach that topic. Now, there's lots of ways we could do this. And before we go on, Tony, did you ever do any CBI lessons? Yes. A lot? Many, yeah. Okay. You want to go ahead and just give an example of some of the lessons you did that you would consider uh, to be content-based? Okay. This is pretty – it's an interesting – I don't know that it's – very directly connected, but it might be. But it's a pretty interesting story. This also goes back 30 years, um, where the um, at the same school, the Simongako, um, the owner, the president, <laughs> the president um, had a thing for him. Uh, institution produced materials and so yeah of course the the people the my cohorts my colleagues uh yeah just said okay fine and they created some uh materials and the materials would be used for um 
our ordinary students, there was a semagogue, students who could not, semagogue was kind of like a community college or a vocational college, uh, who could not get into a university where, when that was still difficult back in the early 90s. Uh, and we also had courses for uh, university graduates, uh, translation, uh, interpretation program. And uh, of course, economics is like all the students in the school had to use the same book. I'll let that hang for a second. So, so I'm, so I, I am tasked with this, with the, um, you know, graduates of Japanese university. They did all English majors. They did interpretation translation. They want to learn English. Um, and so basically, uh, I did, you know, just again, just ad hoc, like, okay, Tony, build a course. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, and you know, inter intercultural. Kind of bent and saying, okay, fine. So what uh, I decided, what I did was, um, I don't remember the author's name. Sorry, I'm not good with names. Uh, but it was a um, long novel called Wild Swans. And it was a story of a multi-generational family in China. Women. Uh, it followed the women over several generations through uh, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, through Mao, et cetera, et cetera. And as a, I'm trying to, again, this is 90s, as Amazon is just getting off the ground. Um, so books, uh, content, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, this is what we're going to do. I, I ordered a few books you know, on my own tab, and I paid for them. And uh, one of the books, this is okay. We went to class and I divided the class, and it was like, it's only 12 or 15 students uh, into three or four or five groups, don't remember. Um, and uh, kind of took one of the books and separated it out by, uh, you know, length, like how many chapters. And I just ripped the book apart. So, okay, group A, this is your section. Group B, this is your section. Group C, this is your section. And, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to, you're going to come to class and your group is going to tell the story. It went great. It, it really turned out well. And then for the, uh, the, the student festival, we put together a, this is back, way back before, you know, actually we could use, um, you know, before QuickTime building a video, we made, uh, Vito just splicing together, you know, from VCR tape to VCR tape, a uh, multicultural uh, presentation with music and video. And everyone, these groups, each group had a different section, a different part of the world. There's Indonesia, and then it was China, there's you know, Europe. I, don't, I can't remember the, all the groups, but they, each group was responsible for presenting some kind of cultural representation of their part of the world. Um, yeah, and so and then actually I did I did one or two presentations on you know content based learning um, from my experiences with these classes and that was like total full on with with that group but there were some other classes that I worked uh, did the same thing and you know for a long time I, I taught my um, survival skills and cultural communication classes. Um, and, and a lot of the universities that I taught at, and and my book, um, so you know all those kinds of things. But uh, that one with the with the wild swans uh, novel really kind of sticks out. Okay, 
And did you, how many years did you do that? Two. And you taught and, it the same way. And I left, I, I left the school. Yeah, <laughs> I moved on. But yes, I did, I did that for two years. And I taught it this pretty much the same way both years. Okay. So if you look back on that, um, how did, so you give each group of students the chapter, right? Yeah, they had probably three or four chapters. It's a long book. Yeah. Okay. And they, what did, what directions did you give them specifically? Did you guide them along? How did you get them to deal with the material? What kind of support did you give them? Well, I was, I was always there. Number one. Number two, I says, well, of course, basics, you've just got, because the other kids aren't reading the book, you've got to give a synopsis of your, the plot. Of that takes us like what the main characters, what what are the significant things that happened to each of them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What struck you as unusual? What made an impression? What questions do you have? And basically, they kind of were left to um, lead the class, and other students were uh, you know encouraged, and then they were they're pretty open. They're they're they're. Again, I'm I'm blessed. I was very very lucky with with, with the students that I've had. Um, very open and willing to ask questions. And uh, then when they were kind of <laughs> out of steam, then I would kind of take over and and kind of give my two cents about what was you know what were the key points, what was important for what's to come, uh, what is interesting um, culturally. What's different, you know, not only what I suspect would be interesting to them as Japanese students reading a story about China, but also what I found different, interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, great fun. Okay, so that's um, something that you did, uh, and so you know, in terms of like what we're talking about right now, it's like yeah, one one way. To mix it up, it's, it's like to take to you know. We talked about flipped classrooms. Like okay, now these students now not only they've got to learn their bit, but they've also got to teach it to somebody else. Other students are reading their part of the book, but they're listening to the the part the, the book from their classmates. And again, talking about teaching styles, these are advanced students, but it's like you know, was I did I. Prohibit them from using Japanese in the class? Hell no. That's <laughs> not the point. <laughs> you're reading it. You're listening to them present in English. It's like you want to understand it. It's like why would I prohibit you from understanding <laughs> what's going on? Um, I'm not. I, I'm not. There is an impediment to learning. <laughs> well, we can argue that one for a long time. But a lot of it. No, that's a good. But that's yeah, a good yeah. example. The rule of no Japanese in the classroom speak English. And I know people who are adamant that Japanese right. is okay or absolutely not. And most of the time I'm really, you know, don't speak Japanese in my class. And when I do that, it's because I know that the students are going to Japanese when it becomes difficult for them to yeah, yeah, right. it's, it's, to yeah. say something, to explain yep. their thinking. And I have to explain to them, that's the point where learning occurs. Right. It's when you stop there and you get your you look up the phrase and figure out what how to say it in English, what the words are that you use. In that situation, I think, um, you know, 
no Japanese makes complete sense. Yeah. Uh, but the other way is that there are times when it's like, oh, wait, you know, the content that I want them to learn is important. Some of them are not going to be able to understand it, but I need the, the, the content. I can't move on without them understanding the content. And in that situation, you would say, okay, talk to each other, summarize in Japanese, et cetera, then it's okay. So again, we're, we're kind of talking about flexibility here, I think. And, uh, um, this is one of the great things, by the way, um, that I love when, uh, you know, with YouTube, um, I've made some YouTube explanation videos and it's great because you can, students can speed up or slow down the video. They can put the auto, um, auto, um, auto caption, yep. automatic closed caption on that, or they can even get auto translate, which is not perfect. And depending on their level. And, you know, you yes. say, hey, if you, you know, try to watch it and if you're doing okay, stay with it. Don't use any closed caption, English closed caption. If you're having trouble, then go to, you know, slow it down a little bit and see if that works. If that still doesn't work, then go to closed caption. Um, if you can't understand it with English subtitles, then go to the Japanese subtitles so you understand what it's about. Or, you know, for example, that great thing that YouTube has, which is transcripts, right? They have the auto transcript function. That's the little three dots in the bottom right corner of most YouTube videos. And so this is, a, again, an example of being able to deliver things in different ways. And it's also exactly. a, it's differentiated learning. Exactly, exactly. But I don't always do that. I'll say, okay, this is the usual way. But then one day I'm going to say, okay, what I want you to do is turn the sound off and only read the captions. And yeah, it's now no training wheels. Yeah. Right, exactly. Or now it's a reading lesson. Right. Okay. Exactly. Or let me take away the training wheels or let me give you more training wheels. And of course, there's variation. You can give students freedom. But the idea, again, is to vary how that lesson is delivered and what's done. Another example is, let's say I'm doing something where the content's really important. And this comes up in one of the classes I teach, which is about, um, it's called English communication, but it's really for students who are doing their student training. And I spend time look, talking about you know, how we teach, what we teach, what are some of the ideas behind teaching. So let's say I have this content-based lesson. Now, I can give the students the vocabulary that they're going to need, the target vocabulary, and I can provide them up before the lesson with important, you know, phrases that they're going to need. I can provide them with some background information um, to do. So that's one way to do it. And that's a common way, which is that whole scaffolding of, you know, providing the English that the students will need to do the lesson. Well, there are times where I'll flip it over and instead I'll say, no, go ahead, listen to the video or listen to my talking about this or read the article, mark the words you don't know. And it's your job now to teach each other the vocabulary and the key phrases so that you can help each other understand. So in other words, you can invert the way the lesson is taught. Absolutely. And, right. Instead of just constantly following the rules. Yep. Now, this is not to deny that there is research that says this is the best way to deliver, let's say, a content lesson. 
But on the other hand, we also know that there's been a reasonable amount of research that shows that if you quiz students on something they don't know, they will remember more once they start learning it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. we, Good. you know, I don't know. Maybe that works all the time. But the idea is that we know that when the results get reported, they'll tell us, you know, what percentage it worked, et cetera. But it's not going to always work all the time with the same student. And it's not going to work all the time with all the students. So that's something I think that needs to be looked at. You know, yeah, and there's there's all there, there's all kinds of ways to 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 utilize that because you know the the basic principle and we talked I mentioned it like like very early on about how the different input methods and and different environments and and different contexts uh, can impact learning and things. So um, yeah, flipping things around. Um, I hate to I hate to use that in a flipped classroom, but but those kinds of things. So get a reading class. Use a writing exercise. You got a writing class? Use a reading exercise. Flip, put the emphasis on the other way. Flip it around. You have the students write something and then have their peers read it. Um, content variations. You've got like, so you, you asked about content and then a couple of times, right? You know, prescribed textbooks that I've, I've had to use, you know, focus on, you know, you know, they're topic based. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm, you know the what the textbook offers or the video that the textbook offers is like kind of sucks. <laughs> so, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna find something better, and 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 maybe it's just audio, maybe it's a it's an interview, maybe it's a video, uh, maybe it's something in writing. So you just substitute something else, um, whether it's uh, something from another textbook, something that you find on the internet, a video, a song. Um, as I as I mentioned with the what I did with that one novel, have students uh, teach the lesson, right? So you've got you know a, a chapter in a textbook that you have to use. Find a way to figure it out, divide it up, and have different groups of students teach, or not only teach, you know, present to the class, but submit questions. Have them make the quiz. Have them make the test. Um, Games that reinforce the content of what it is that you're trying to teach, whether it's something as basic as a crossword puzzle, whether it's you can get to the, you know a more uh, interactive thing like hangman or you know word scrambles or, or those types of things. Um, Want to get out there and crazy? You know, if you've got if it's a small enough class, have a student come up there and it's like, okay, next week I'm going to choose. X number of students, you're going to come up here and you're going to teach this class in my style. You're going to go up here and pretend you're Tony and, t- and teach <laughs> this class to the class. Um, uh, all of those things flip things around enough that it changes the context enough so that what's happening is memorable. And so whatever, you know, a student comes up and they're imitating me, whatever that student is thinks that he or she is teaching to the class, they're going to remember that because it's part of a memorable event. That's, and you know, when you talked early on, it's like you have to um, 
make things interesting. And yeah, you know, what's interesting for one kid is not going to be interesting to another. And there's going to be no universal interesting thing. But um, part of our job is to uncap that imaginative aspect and bring it all out there. And uh, I, as you said, make it interesting. Yeah, get students to well, not make it interesting. Get students to do interesting things. Mm. Because I think this comes from but, my discussion with Sophie, um, which was our the podcast last month with my daughter, where we talked about this idea that classes should be fun. And I mentioned that classes should be engaging. And I think there's a difference there. I think there's still, um, you know, there's too okay. much of an yep. emphasis on yep. fun yep. rather than engagement. Because there's just, as I said, there's just a lot of learning that just isn't fun, has to get yep. done. So, work. yeah. And there's another thing I want to mention that, um, and this came up just uh, the last week for me, uh, again, really emphasized to me how we have to include different ways of teaching. And, excuse me, sorry about that. Um, I taught pre-reading to my students. Okay. Explained them how to pre-read. There's a uh -huh. whole, you know, did the whole thing. And then I asked them, how do you pre-read a YouTube okay. video? Okay. You know, I wanted to see some transfer of learning. See if they could figure that out that, you know, there's not a summary or abstract in a YouTube video, but there's a description. Pardon me? Uh-huh. I'm right? listening. Okay. I'm listening. This is great. I'm going to Okay. Listen. So, right. You do the same thing. You look at the title, and then it says, look at the author. And I said, well, sometimes there's not an author. There's a creator, or there might be a channel. So, you do that. So, you have to change from author to channel. Then uh, description versus summary abstract. And then the question, though, is, is that, you know, I said, but you're – in pre-reading, you look through all the subtitles, the sections, titles, and subsection titles. How do you do that in YouTube? And most of the students didn't get it, even though they use YouTube, that there are those chapter, those sections right. that are in YouTube that, you know, is always under the more. It's included under more. But also, you can just, uh, what is it, scrub through real yeah, quickly yeah, and hit, hit all the break break points and that'll give you the same thing as your subtitle sections right then there's the thing where you read the first paragraph and the last paragraph again a lot of the students were not able to say oh i should listen to the first minute and the last minute of the the video so it was interesting to me that they were not really able to you know figure out how to apply the pre-reading to the YouTube. But here's where it got interesting. About two weeks later, um, I was talking to a student and they had pretty good English. And uh, they were, they were, I had said, please read this, you know, very short article in the class. And I watched the student and I realized they weren't pre-reading. They just started reading. So I said to the student, mm -hmm. I said, excuse me, um, you're not pre-reading. And the student said, no. And I said, I'm just curious why. And the student says, I think it's useless. Yeah. And I thought, huh. <clears throat> and I asked the student, <clears throat> I said, well, how do you know it's useless? And the student says, well, I just feel that way. I just want to read. And then my question to the student was, I said, well, what data do you have? What evidence do you have that 
you not pre-read that pre-reading is actually useless and it has no effect on improving your comprehension or your understanding. And the student said, I don't have any data or evidence. And I challenged the student by saying, well, you know, that's the definition of prejudice, right? Is having an idea or thought or feeling without having any evidence or data to base it upon. It's a thought or feeling that's not based upon any data. And what that made me realize is that I hadn't included in any of my lessons an actual, hey, find out which works best for you. It would have been a great, um, kind of almost like a problem-based learning activity, which is to say, find out whether or not pre-reading works for you, you know, and set that up. How would you figure it out? How would you check yourself? How would you test yourself? And that got me, you know, Tony, really just like, whoa, how many of my students just think it's useless? I know a lot of them think that it's, they said that it's um, troublesome. It's a hassle to read first. And I was trying and saying, hey, but, you know, the research shows that it really improves your understanding, comprehension, and will save you time over the line, over over time. And again, it just made me realize, well, I haven't, there's no experiential learning going on here. They have no evidence. There's no proof. I'm just saying, trust me on this and do what I say. And I realized, ah, you know, that's something I do all the time. Trust me, do what I say because I know what I'm talking about and I'm reporting the research to you rather than, whoa, I could be presenting this in different ways. I could have given half the class pre-reading, say, read the article, pre-read it. The other class don't. And then we compare comprehension grades or ask, right? Ask the students, each student to read one article without pre-reading and read the other with pre-reading and then wait a week and post-test them to see how much they remember. And that, I think, is what got me started, which is saying, you know, I don't – I teach this stuff the same way. It's the same approach. Just trust me. Believe what I say. Here we go. There's no experiential learning. There's no problem-based learning going on. There's no discovery process for them. And it's like, ah, I need to include that in my lessons more. It was a real interesting moment. Yeah, and, and listening uh, to, to, to what you're saying, uh, it struck me that, um, yeah, he, the student said, it's like, well, yeah, I have no evidence of this. But that's kind of what they've been taught. Talk about like reading. They have been trained for information retrieval and not comprehension. And so if you're looking at information retrieval, then the pre-reading might not be efficient or effective. But if your goal is comprehension, then the pre-reading is, again, as you would structure it, it's like, of course, it's like, Blah. Is it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's integral. I mean, it's, it's really important and it's going to enhance your understanding, your comprehension, you know, many times over, but that's not what they've been trained to do. They're, they've been trained for information retrieval. Uh, fascinating. It's very interesting. I don't know. I mean, well, I do tell them that. I mean, that really upsets yeah, well, them. I'm sure you, you do. Know, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> Cause you know, I, I teach at, at, at a very good school. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, but it, but it, it's interesting how that highlights that, right? Right. And and your way of like being able to to do that, you know, empirically in their face it would be very, very interesting. Right. And one of the things that's uh, <clears throat> is really funny is I've told the students that I said, you know, um, <laughs> you know why you're here at this really good school. And they look at each other and, you know, they're first year students and you can see they're really, they're, you know, kind of like, yeah, because I'm really smart. Yeah. yeah. And I say, because I'm you're, shit, man. <laughs> I say, you're here because you can take tests well. And that you can just see that, <laughs> you know, it's rare to actually get really strong emotions from people, uh-huh, <laughs> visual uh-huh, signals, uh-huh. but you can see that they do not like that. Uh huh. Right. Well, they, that's like my my chapter in my book on you Japanese universities. Yeah, right, they right. Don't like, yeah. They don't like that. Well, they hate <laughs> that chapter. That. By the way, I use your book, and they really hate that chapter. But uh, <laughs> the other thing that's really interesting is, you know, I really emphasize reviewing, and I tell my students you need to review before you come to every class. And I ask all my different schools, and I'll ask my students, "Did you review?" And ninety percent, ninety five percent of the students don't review. And I always ask and, them, and the they're honest thing. enough to say so. Yeah, which I appreciate. Which is, I find interesting. Yeah, which <laughs> is, you know, it's like, of course, we're not going to listen to you. And Mike, I always ask them as I say, why don't you listen to me? <laughs> I said, because I explained to them that think it through. If you review for every class each week and you review for the previous classes, you don't have to study for your final exam. You've already studied. You get to take it easy that week. You're up to date. You're ready. Everything's deeply ingrained in your brain. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you could see them all nodding in agreement. And then I come back to class the next week and I say, okay, how many of you reviewed? <laughs> and of course, we, you know, one out of 30 students, you know, raised well, their So hand. much for that theory about like languages and like, um, Subject, verb, object, order, and the societies that cult and cultures that have the verb at the end of the sentence are more accepting of delayed gratification. It's going to throw that away. Give up on that one. Yeah. Well, I would throw that. First time I've ever heard it, but I would throw it away right away. But <laughs> so the, the point again is it goes back to my question of like, why don't you listen to me? And it's like, oh, you're teacher yeah you or, should be listening to me strike one strike two but the it's idea is that i have to deliver this in a way with some variety so that what, what's the best way to put it so that i can hit them over the head several times in several different ways so that they have no choice but to accept it and uh-huh, again uh-huh. You know, the idea of mixing it up, Um, you know, I'm just lecturing to them, telling them to do something. I should just say, okay, how many people reviewed? And if the people raise their hand, I say, okay, please write an R at the top right of your quiz paper. How many people didn't review, write nothing, and then test and then put the results up and say, look, let's take a look. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the students who reviewed don't score well, but my guess is that the students who reviewed would score better on a pop quiz than the students who didn't review, especially if we're going back a long ways. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see, 
you know, to do. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. That'll be interesting. But again, I'm just talking about, you know, delivering in different ways. And I, I re- you know, realized I don't deliver in different ways. I was going to, yeah, I was going to kind of put put that question out there. It's like, it's like yeah. But but I was going to answer, well, you know, Charles, what do you do? But it's really hard. Um, most of us uh, don't have the luxury of being able to, you know, sit down and plot out multiple ways of doing what we have to do. Hard enough to figure out one way to do it. Um, however, <clears throat> it's worth having that idea in 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 the back of our minds uh, that there's more than one way to do this. There's one one way to approach this. There's one more. There's more than one way to present this, and uh, rather than just saying, "Okay, this is yeah, this is me, and this is." That's a, and this is chapter three, and this is what I do, and that's easy, and we do it. It's like we have to. We we, we don't again. We don't have the luxury uh, uh, often of doing it any other way. But um, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves that there are other ways to do things, and there may be better ways to do it. Um, I think there are some 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 caveats though. Um, we we've talked mostly about like you know like single teacher situations and and before the podcast I think kind of in the back of our mind we're thinking about like you know different teachers and we talked a little bit about it with like like teacher teams and there's different types of things and like we have to think about what's you know our classroom expectations and what those students are going to go into another teacher's classroom they're going to have other expectations they can't clash too much so we need to kind of kind of keep that. In mind, because otherwise the kids are just confused all the time. You know, it's like one mm. teacher requires them to stand up and bow when he walks into the classroom, and there's somebody like me who like sits on the table. <laughs> well, I might say I sit on the desk. I sit on the desk uh, the first class every every semester, um, and use first names. And other he's like, no, no, you, no, you must call me Professor. Um, so. We got got to be aware of that, and because that's just going to rattle the students. They're never they're never going to get to the lesson because they don't they don't know how to be. Um, so teachers' expectations for the students can from one teacher to another can really vary a lot. Um, and the other thing is like as you know, we, we you, and I think it's especially Japan. It's, it's probably universal, but I think it's stronger in Japan. Um, beginning of the semester, uh, a teacher <clears throat> needs to establish what he or she wants as the teacher-student dynamic. And if we vary the teachers too much, uh, there's going to be conflict, and, and it might disrupt that dynamic. It's a small example. <clears throat> uh, last year? This year? What, where am I? <laughs> um, this year in spring, I um, uh, was a guest lecturer at uh, a university here where my wife teaches, um, University of Arkansas. Arkansas. No, I'm sorry. Arkansas State University, Caretaro branch. And I taught classes um, 
three or four classes one day. And um, we just have very different classroom type rules. She's really, really strict about cell phones in class. I may have not. And so she started, you know, chat. I'm, I'm talking. I'm doing a thing. And it was um, about, it's a, it's a English immersion university. So everything is in English. We're talking about internet research shortcuts, basically. Um, and, you know, it's internet. And so, so kids start whipping out their phones and she starts ripping it. And I say, no, 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 that's okay. Let them use their phones. Because for me, it's like, you know, phones are part of what I'm talking about. Number one, number two, if they're doing their, their, their personal thing, that's, that's on me. I'm not, I'm not delivering the product. I'm not delivering. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. Uh, If I'm not, if I can't hold their attention, then I've got to do a better job. We disagree with that. So I didn't make a big deal of it. It's her class. She's got her rules. It's like, okay, fine. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I says, no, no. I, I said once. No, it's okay. Let, let me, no, no, no phone. Okay. All right, fine. So when we're talking about like, you know, mixing things up and different teaching styles, um, if you have like some, you know, switching teachers off, it's like, you really need to kind of watch that and make sure that it's not uh, creating more confusion than it's helping. Um, and even if it's if it's just you, uh, and I think this is more of a Japanese thing than it is other places in the world. All of us, you know, you begin, you know, teaching in in spring. And there's going to be a, a while before you feel like you're in the groove where the students start to feel comfortable <laughs> with this scary foreigner talking at them in English. Um, and it's a mutual thing. I mean, you have to adjust and they have to adjust, but you kind of can sense when you kind of get there. Um, and if you introduce some of this change up too quickly, it's just going to freak them out. Um, the The culture does not respond well to surprises or the unexpected. So you really need to like establish a base before you start changing things up. Because uh, they really come to depend on that familiarity. And, you know, we talked a lot. We talked in a previous podcast about like teaching styles. Um how getting out of the comfort zone can enhance learning. Um, I think you need to be careful in Japan um, about doing too much too soon. Uh, not that I don't question the validity of the idea, but I think you need to first have a good basis, uh, a good atmosphere of trust, mutual trust, maybe. Uh, and then, after that, finding a balance of, hi, this is me. This is the our class. This is what we do. But hey, today it's going to be different. And at a certain point, you can do that, and it doesn't hurt things. But if you do it too fast, too soon, too much, you, you're going you're to lose your class. I think. So we, you got to be careful. It's and it's we. Uh, 
I don't have a formula. <laughs> can't say how many days, how many minutes, and how many how many minutes of this and how many minutes of that, and what what signs you look for. No, I, I'm not. I, I can't give that to you. But um, I would just say, just go carefully. It, and it, it can like because well, as I, I told my story about like ripping up that book. When I ripped up that book in front of the class, they were horrified. Um, and, and I kind of expected that they would be, but I, I had already established a relationship of trust with them, and it, lucky for me, uh, it, it turned out great. So, anyway, just uh, caution. I think those are good points, and it's a total other podcast about you know comfort versus shock value. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Especially given the way the world is moving now. I, Ooh. you know, don't, I think that <laughs> students really, we have to shock them into awareness that, hey, you know, if you think that you're feeling comfortable being comfortable is a requirement for you to learn and succeed, good morning. <laughs> this is not <laughs> what's going to happen. So I think that's a good topic for uh, another podcast, Tony. Because, uh -huh. but I do agree with you that, you know, you can't like tear the book up on the first day, but <laughs> right. there's also the part of me which says, yeah, go ahead and do it and just, you know, watch their eyes get really big and force them to do that. I, again, it goes back to a lot of uh, the ways that, you know, young people are being raised and their expectations yeah. and, you know, so this is the whole I think Jonathan Haidt, we've talked about this before, the coddling yeah, yeah. of the American mind and the whole anti-fragile yep. thing. So let's leave that for another podcast because we've yeah. been going on an hour and a minute yep. now. So shall yep. we wrap up? Let's wrap up uh, unless you got something else. No, we'll um, include that in the next I think podcast. I'm good. Okay. I think I'm good. Yeah. All right. So. Okay, folks. I hope you, I hope you got something out of that. Um, I mean, we're nothing definitive, but some stuff to think about. Right. This is more but food you, for thought kind of episode. Yeah, and it's like it's just a different you just encourage them to mix things up. Don't don't you know, get out of the rut. Right. Um it's it, again, it's that balancing things is because the Japanese student classrooms they, they do rely on that um pattern and that repetition and the comfort, but you decide, you know, you look at them and Make a decision of what they can handle and give them what they can handle. <laughs> push them. Push yeah, them push give them, them what them. they can handle plus one. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. So I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we're Two Teachers Talking. And uh, you can reach us at a number of places, Two Teachers Talking at gmail.com. Uh, we have the website, Two Teachers Talking.com. I guess there's other ways to get hold of us, right? You'll find us. You'll find us. People do. Yeah. And and thanks to those of you who do. I mean, uh, yeah. um, really good interaction with, with some of the folks who've reached out. It's, like, it's cool. It's nice. Thank you. Yes. Some people have really written some really nice messages. It's been interesting. Okay. Very rewarding. Very All rewarding. Right. Very nice. Cool. Okay, Tony. All right, man. You be well. Enjoy your break. Okay, you too. See you. Enjoy your retirement. Bye. Yes. Yeah, enjoy your retirement. <laughs> Bye.